Good evening. Tonight, the title for our text, uh, for our sermon, is Stopping to Celebrate God's Grace in the Wilderness. Um, before we kind of get to it, um, I want to share about family traditions. I don't know if you have any family traditions. Uh, most of us have them, and for a lot of us, there's something we look forward to or we look back on because they bring about great amounts of joy. Uh, for our family, we all look forward to New Year's Eve, or at least I do. It's my favorite holiday. Um, it's our favorite family tradition. And this is what we do. Every year we pick up Central Barbecue. We get the party pack, ribs included. Um, we pick up shrimp cocktail and uh, the bubbly um, grape juice from the Kroger. If you can find blueberry, that's really good. That's my favorite. Um, so we all eat together um, and have a great meal. Then we pull a bunch of beds out of our different bedrooms. And we put them all in the living room. Um, and we watch Home Alone, which, in my opinion, is the best Christmas movie of all time. Um, after that, we go outside and we celebrate New Year's Eve with those funny glasses that don't have, you know, the lenses in them. Uh, and we um, have party poppers, those little poof, confetti things. Sometimes we'll have sparklers or the little poppets. Um, we've got silly string, and we run around our yard and make it a mess, at least for one day. Uh, we come back inside and we eat a yummy dessert, and um, if there's any left over from Christmas, sometimes it's my, uh, my grandmother's peppermint Oreo pie, which um, we absolutely love. Um, after that, we all sleep in the living room, we wake up in the morning, and have a big breakfast, um, and it is my favorite tradition, although I'm prepared that as our kids get older, they may start trying to plan other things on New Year's Eve. But tonight, as we come to this passage, um, there's an important annual tradition that begins or continues, d depending on how you look at it, in the life of God's people. And this tradition is called Passover. We've already seen in the earlier chapters of Numbers that God has counted and he's numbered his people. He knows them by name. God then gives Aaron and his sons a profound and beautiful blessing that they are to receive for themselves and then in return to give to the people of Israel, even though they will continue to grumble and wander in the wilderness and sin against the Lord. And now the Israelites have found themselves in the, in, in the wilderness, in this desert, and it's been a year since being redeemed and delivered from slavery in Egypt. And the Lord instructs Moses to continue the tradition of this miraculous deliverance that God had worked for them. Let's pray together, and then we'll read our text, Numbers 9, 1 through 14. Let's pray first. Father in heaven, uh, we thank you for this evening, and we do thank you for your word. And we do confess um, passages like this one, we're often tempted to wonder, what does this have to do with me? Um, but Lord, you promise to speak in and through your word. Your word is active. Your word is living. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. Um, your word is the only rule of faith in life. And so Lord, we pray that you would show us the gospel tonight through this text. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So our passage is Numbers 9, 1 through 14, and we'll read it in its entirety together. And the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the first month of the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Let the people of Israel keep the Passover at its appointed time. On the fourteenth day of this month, at twilight, you shall keep it at its appointed time. According to all its statutes and all its rules, you shall keep it. So Moses told the people of Israel that they should keep the Passover. And they kept the Passover in the first month on the 14th day of the month at twilight in the wilderness of Sinai, according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So the people of Israel did. And there were certain men who were unclean through the touching of a dead body so that they could not keep the Passover on that day. And they came before Moses and Aaron on that day. 
And those men said to him, we are unclean through touching a dead body. Why are we kept from bringing the Lord's offering at its appointed time among the people of Israel? And Moses said to them, wait, that I may hear what the Lord will command concerning you. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, speak to the people of Israel, saying, if any one of you or of your, your descendants is unclean through touching a dead body or is on a long journey, he shall still keep the Passover to the Lord. And the second month, on the fourteenth day, at twilight, they shall keep it. They shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall leave none of it until the morning, nor break any of its bones. According to all the statute for the Passover, they shall keep it. But if anyone who is clean and is not on a journey fails to keep the Passover, that person shall be cut off from his people, because he did not bring the Lord's offering at its appointed time. That man shall bear his sin. And if a stranger sojourns among you, and would keep the Passover to the Lord according to the statue of the Passover and according to its rule, so shall he do. You shall have one statute, both for the sojourner and for the native. This is the word of the Lord. So I normally, um, honestly, I sometimes shake my head when um, preachers say, when I was in seminary, um, I was like, oh gosh, what's, whatever. Um, but I'm going to share a when I was in seminary, and I'm going to... Um, ask you to hold me to it. This is going to be my, um, this is going to be the last time I'll pull that when I was in seminary card. But when I was in seminary, I had the opportunity to learn from the master, master sermon writer, Mr. Brian Chappell himself, the man, the myth, the legend, former president of Covenant Seminary, the stated clerk of the PCA. And if you've heard me preach before, I think in one of my first sermons, I actually said this as a way of saying, I don't really know what I'm doing. But I remember Brian saying, you don't know what you're doing until you preach in a pulpit 300 to 400 times. And I can tell you right now that I'm nowhere close. But this is what Dr. Chapel taught his students when, when I was in seminary. Um, he taught his students that in, when writing a sermon, one of the first things you were to look for was the fallen condition focus um, or in preacher talk, the FCF. Um, Dr. Chappell defines the FCF as this, the mutual human condition that the believer shares with those to or about whom the text was written that requires the grace of the passage for God's people to glorify and enjoy him. If you begin to listen on Sunday mornings or you listen to sermons online or whatever, um, you'll hear this in every preacher's sermons or the good ones anyways, from the Joe Schmoes like me to the Dr. Lucases and the Dr. Kellers. And honestly, if you peek back at our text tonight, if you have your Bible still open, this one's tough. Finding this fallen condition focus, it's not so obvious. We don't celebrate Passover, right? Um, We don't celebrate Passover any longer. This all happened so long ago in a place so far away. It's easy for us to read a passage like this from Numbers 9, to skim over it and to keep on reading, and maybe um, we'll be missing what the Lord has for us. As I've thought about this passage all week, and I began um, later than I'd wanted to, starting to put my, my thoughts onto paper on Thursday, I think this is where I've landed. I wonder how many of the Israelites failed to properly celebrate the Passover and how many of them really failed in following the rules and the law as they were laid out by the Lord. If we believed what our Reformed tradition teaches us, right, that we're totally depraved in all that we think and all that we do because of our sinful hearts um, and the sin acted out in our lives, I imagine no one followed God's desires or his law in these matters perfectly. And further, Moses was told that if someone failed to celebrate the Passover— They must be cut off from the people of God and that they would bear their sin. I'm guessing the Israelites failed much more than they got it right. I imagine some failed to celebrate Passover, but they got a pass from the leaders of Israel because they were an important family. 
or they paid their way out, or they appeared to be celebrating Passover from the outside, but in reality, their evening was spent much differently than the way that it had appeared. Their hearts weren't in it, and they missed the point of remembering the special act of deliverance. Yet the Israelites were commanded by the Lord to stop and to celebrate this special tradition called Passover in the midst of their wandering in the wilderness. This was for God's glory, yes, but it was also for his people's good, right? Some of the best commentators are children's authors, and Sally Lloyd-Jones said that all of God's commands are good and we're to follow them because ultimately they show us how life works best. God called his people to pause and to remember in their wandering that he is a God of grace, a God of deliverance, and a God who heard their cry when they were enslaved in Egypt, not just in the past, but yes, even now, and for sure, even in the future. I think we can actually relate to our um, ancient friends and ancestors, the fathers and mothers, our brothers and sisters of our faith, the actual descendants of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. We show up to worship sometimes because we have to, not because we want to or we get to. We too know what God expects of us and how he has commanded us to live in his word, uh, which we believe is the only rule for our faith and practice. And we are all too aware that we fail to follow through more than we would like to admit. And as God was gracious to his people in the past, God will continue to be gracious to you and to me today and tomorrow because of the work of Jesus, his son. Yes, God is a God of law, but he also is a God of grace. And it's important to remember that in passages like this. I do think there is something rich and beautiful for us tonight if, we're, if we would pause to see it and to hear it, and that God is a God of grace and mercy, that he is patient with his people, and that in and through Christ, he is a God who forgives his people even when they're wayward, lazy, apathetic, and rebellious. And then one of the, the words of one of the commentators that are on this topic, this passage shows us that God is actually a God of second chances. And so with that long introduction behind us, I want to offer four brief points, and if you write, like to write things, there's lots of W's. So the first one is what and where, the second is who and what about, the third is what if, and the fourth is the wilderness of your life. So what and where, who and what about, what if, and the wilderness of your life. So first, the what and the where. Some of you are really familiar with the Bible um, in redemptive history, and some of you aren't, no matter where you're at. It's a, this is a good point where we talk about something like Passover to stop and to remember what was the Passover and how did it start? God's people were enslaved in Egypt for more than 400 years, and yet God promised his ancestors all the way back to Abraham that, um, that he would give them a land and that he would bless them and that he would make their name great so that they would be a blessing into the world. Um, and God's people feel like they haven't been heard and possibly that they've been forgotten, that God no longer hears them, that God has forgotten his promises. And they must have wondered, has God taken them back? And yet they call out to him for deliverance and for rescue. And this is what happens. After silence for many years, God hears the cries of his people. And he speaks through Moses to Pharaoh. And essentially the message is this, is let my people go. And you know the story from Exodus. There's this back and forth between Pharaoh and Moses and God. And after each dialogue, God sends a plague because Pharaoh refused to let God's people go because his heart was being hardened. And the final plague is one that, at least initially, breaks Pharaoh. God says, let my people go, or every firstborn son in the land of Egypt will die. Pharaoh refuses, and so God commits to send an angel of death, I mean, like, what a terrible task, through Egypt to kill all of the firstborn sons in Egypt. And yet God desires to protect his people and to keep him safe. And the way that he did that was through the Passover. 
God instructed his people to take a lamb, the best one that they had or the best one that they could find, and they were to kill it and to slaughter it, and they were to paint the doorposts of their homes with its blood. And when the Lord's angel of death swept through Egypt, the angel would see the blood on the doorposts and pass over the houses of the Israelites and not kill their firstborn sons. In Exodus 12, we hear the Lord say this, that the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land in Egypt. And this final plague in the death of his, this final plague in the death of his firstborn son, Pharaoh relents finally and he lets God's people go. However, Pharaoh um, regrets his decision somewhat quickly and his heart hardens and he chases after God's people. The Red Sea falls and crushes Pharaoh's army. And this is what happens. God's people have been rescued and they've been delivered by the mighty hand of God. And they are now heading towards the promised land. That's where we find our, ourselves. Um, that's, th that's the what and the where. The Israelites are now, um, they've left Egypt and they've found themselves in the desert. They're in the wilderness, the desert, and they're traveling towards this new life in the land that God had promised to give them, free from Egypt and not yet to their final destination. And it's been one year. And this is where we find ourselves in Numbers 9. You can look, look at um, chapter 9, 1 through 6. And the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the first month of the second year after they'd come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Let the people of, e uh, of Israel keep the Passover and its appointed time. On the 14th day of this month at twilight, you shall keep it at its appointed time according to all of its statutes and all of its rules, you shall keep it. So Moses told the people of Israel that they should keep the Passover. And they kept the Passover in the first month on the 14th day of the month at twilight in the wilderness of Sinai, according to all that the Lord commanded Moses, so the people of Israel did. God instructs Moses to continue the tradition, to pause in the wilderness, and to remember the grace and the deliverance that God miraculously and powerfully worked in their lives. So that was the what and the where. Secondly, I think it's important for us to consider the who and the what about. So who was to celebrate Passover? I mean, obviously, we just read it in, in uh, verse 2, let the people of Israel. The Israelites were God's chosen people. We see this over and over and over again through Genesis and throughout the whole Bible that God is a covenantal God who chose to give his special attention and blessing to Abraham and to all of his descendants. We learned about this all uh, over the course of Sunday mornings um, as we looked at Genesis uh, on Sunday mornings at IPC. However, one of the more often um, missed or looked over aspects of God's covenant with Abraham is that God's blessing of Abraham and his family was not meant to be an exclusive blessing just for them, but God blessed them so that they would be a blessing. We see this over and over and over again throughout scripture, but um, I referenced this earlier in the sermon. Genesis 12, we hear with God's, when God calls Abram and begins this covenant with him, this is what he says. I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And here's the point. We learn in this passage that someone must have asked a question of the Lord or of Moses. Um, what about? They say, what about the people who've been traveling along with us? We're supposed to celebrate the Passover. We're your people. We're your covenant, covenantal people. But what about those who are traveling with us who are not a part of God's covenant family, the descendants of Abraham? Do, can they celebrate Passover? Should they not be welcome to celebrate Passover? And you see the question in our text. I think, honestly, this question is good news in a lot of ways. 
Um, some of the Israelites must have been making God attractive to those around them, so much so that they had people in their company who were aliens to the promises and the blessings of Yahweh. But they wanted to celebrate Passover, and the question was, could they? Would they be welcomed to this meal? These strangers, these sojourners have been blessed by God's people, and some appear to have embraced the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What about them? We see an answer to this question in verse 14. And the Lord answers this question by saying this, And if a stranger sojourns among you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, according to the statue of the Passover and according to its rule, so shall he do. You shall have one statute, both for the sojourner and for the native. If a stranger wanted to join the Passover meal, they had to do so in accordance with its rules and regulations laid out by the law of God, which meant full inclusion into the community of God's people via circumcision. And it makes sense that if they have actually embraced Yahweh as their God, that they would want to come and to celebrate this important meal. And this is what the Lord says, that they are welcome to come. And this is all by the grace of God. This is a good place to pause, I think, um, to ask some questions. Is your faith a secret in your workplace? Do you shy away from your neighbors when the topic of God or spirituality comes up? Maybe to say it more positively, do you seek to be a blessing to those around you who don't claim Christ so that the Holy Spirit might awaken their spiritually dead hearts? Do you even know people, or are you ever in places with people who don't claim Christ as their own? Do you pursue those who are overlooked or ignored by all the rest? Does your life make the gospel attractive to those who you interact with? I once knew a man who said that he would regularly try to communicate the truths of Scripture without quoting the Bible. And so he'd be having these conversations with people that weren't Christians, and he would be saying truths from the Scripture without even, and people would say, that sounds so good. Where did you hear that from? And he would open up the Bible, and he would, like, have this conversation, share the gospel with them, right? He made the gospel attractive to a world that would typically address, uh, reject it. And I always found that profound. Um, I think this is what Paul is getting at when he says, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how, to, how you ought to answer each person. I don't think we should only make the gospel attractive through the way that we live outside of the church, but I think um, we should live to make the gospel attractive through the way that we live inside of these doors in the church. Um, but because there are those who are skeptics or who are unconvinced in the language of RUF, and my question is, are they welcomed into this community? Are they welcome to come and hear from God and his word? We believe that God changes hearts through the common, mean of, common means of grace, through word, sacrament, and prayer. And if that is true, we should be a welcoming congregation where strangers find a home, no matter how off-kilter or unlike you or me they might be. I'm going to tell you a story, and if some of my students in um, the student ministry have heard me talk about this before, you probably wouldn't ever know this unless you knew me for a long time. Um, but when I was in high school, I was this punk rock kid. Um, I was not your preppy guy. Um, I listened to all kinds of crazy music. Um, my, my kind of scene in high school was going to concerts when I lived in Orlando. And I had gauges in my ears. Some of you are like, what is he talking about? Um, I was um, this punk rock kid. And I remember um, my parents took me to church. And um, our church was very different than IPC. Different isn't a bad thing. It's just different. Um, I was in Orlando at the time. And Orlando is just a different place. But I went to church wearing some of the, like, craziest clothes. Like, my hair was always a variety of different colors. Um, and I remember I had the, this pair of pants that they were, like, tight, 
plaid pants with chains and straps, and I was like 15 or 16, and my parents, for some reason, let me go to church like that. Um, And here's the thing, I never once felt out of place in church, right? It's fascinating. Like, I was welcomed. And through the ministry of that church and through pastors at that church and hearing the means of grace, God, God, I believe God, um, maybe he changed my heart there, maybe he woke it up, I don't know. Um, but the question is the same, right? Is this a place where we're going to welcome people so that they can hear the gospel um, with the hope that the Spirit might change them? Because the reality is this, our faith isn't just for us. And you and I actually, more than likely, are these strangers, these foreigners, these sojourners who've been welcomed by God because most all of us aren't Jewish ancestors by birth. And so we've looked at the the what and the where. We just looked at the who and the what about. Um, Third, the what if. So there's this question that gets asked in our text tonight, and it's what if. Since leaving slavery in Egypt, God had delivered his law to the Israelites, and anyone who had come into contact with a dead person was determined to be ceremonially unclean And they had to wait for a period of time before re-entering into the presence of God's people. There were those who were ceremonially unclean, who wanted to celebrate Passover, but they were forbidden at the appointed time because of their uncleanliness. And the question is this, what if someone who is ceremonially unclean, can they celebrate Passover? And we see an answer to this question, right? You you see them ask this question and Moses says, let me talk to the Lord. We see this in verses 6 through 11 and I'll read it quickly. And there were certain men who were unclean through the touching of a dead body so that they could not keep the Passover on that day. And they came before Moses and Aaron on that day. And these men said to him, we are unclean through the touching of a dead body. Why are we kept from bringing the Lord's offering at its appointed time among the people of Israel? And Moses said to them, wait that I may hear what the Lord commanded concerning you. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel saying, if any one of you or your descendants is unclean, through touching a dead body, or is on a long journey, he shall still keep the Passover to the Lord. In the second month, on the fourteenth day at twilight, they shall keep it. They shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall leave none of it until the morning, nor break any of its bones. According to all the statutes for the Passover, they shall keep. As the stranger who is welcome to celebrate the meal was a sign of God's grace, this provision for those who were not able to celebrate Passover because of their uncleanliness or providential hindrances such as being on a journey away from God's people, is a sign of God's grace as well. God's people had an opportunity a month later to celebrate this meal. So lastly, I want us to consider the wilderness of our lives. As the Israelites were instructed to stop in the wilderness and to look back and remember the grace, the mercy, and the power, and the love of their God, we also are instructed many times throughout Scripture to stop and to remember God's grace in whatever wildernesses we find ourselves in. I mean, honestly, after all, doesn't life in some some ways and many times, maybe far more than we'd like to admit, feel like a wilderness? We believe in the already and the not yet, right? That we are the Lord's, that he is making us new, um, and that he has promised to make all things new after he returns to to fully and finally deal with the power, with with death, uh, with sin and death and the devil, but things are still not exactly the way that they are supposed to be right here and right now. Life, more than we would like to admit, feels like a wilderness. And we're told in God's word to worship together and to not 
neglect meeting together because worship isn't just for God's glory, but it's for our good as well. But it isn't, isn't it interesting that in the wilderness times of our lives, we're tempted to move away from worship and to move away from God rather than towards worship and towards God. When we corporately worship God together, we praise him for his faithfulness to us in the past, and we're encouraged by his word that he'll be faithful to us in the days ahead. In the wilderness, worship with God's people is what we need, although it doesn't often feel like it in the wilderness days. Not only when, uh, when we go through the wilderness of our lives are we tempted to move away from the worship of God, we also are tempted to keep Jesus and the blessings that he wants to give us at a distance. As the Israelites celebrated Passover and remembered the lamb that was killed and whose blood was splatted on the door, their doorposts so the angel of death would pass over their homes, we too know that Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. His blood was spilled, and through him, God's people, we God's people were rescued once and for all from the power of sin, death, and the devil. Isn't it fascinating that on the night that Jesus was betrayed and he was handed over to the religious authorities that he was celebrating this final Passover meal with his disciples? And he told them, and he consequently us, that we should come to his table. That we should come to his table. He says, this do in remembrance of me, he told them. Jesus is the one who says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He promises to give those who are thirsty a kind of water that wells up into eternal life. Those who come to me will never thirst or hunger again, he promises, because he is the bread of life. And the disciples in these final moments with Jesus knew of the wilderness days ahead. And Jesus told them to celebrate this meal, which signified the new covenant that he has brought about through his death and his resurrection. You and I, we know all of these things, um, that our lives should be oriented around our gracious God. But the wilderness can be a disorienting place. We don't always do what we should do, or we, don't, uh, or we do what we know that we should do because we feel like we have to, not because we want to or because we get to. And my friends, tonight that's okay. Because God the Father has given us Jesus the Son, the second Adam, fully God, fully man, yet without sin, who perfectly obeyed the demands of the law, and who has brought into an effect the new covenant, that all who come to him alone for salvation can be brought into the family of God by faith and be given a new life. The best word, I think, to describe the book of Numbers is grumble. That's a word that shows up over and over and over again. God's people, they're rescued and they're delivered from Egypt. They find themselves in the wilderness, and it does not take long for them to begin to want to go back to slavery and Egypt and to go back to Egypt, a shocking claim. And yet God wanted them to remember in the midst of their, in the wilderness to pause and to look back at his mighty acts of power and deliverance and salvation and grace and forgiveness in their lives as they celebrated this first inaugural Passover meal since leaving Egypt. And God wants the same for you, for, for you and for me tonight, for us to pause in the wilderness of our lives, to orient our hearts around his gospel to come together with his people and to worship him, to come to his table for spiritual nourishment, and to come to him so that he can give us whatever our souls need to push through the wilderness days ahead until he comes again or calls us home, so that we might truly know that he was a God of power, deliverance, and salvation, and grace, and forgiveness, yes, to our ancestors in the past, but even for us today and for tomorrow. Um, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this evening.
We thank you for your word, that you are God um, who loves your people, that you are God of grace, that you are God who loves to give us what we need. You tell us what we need in your word. Um, and Lord, um, we, we want to be like the Israelites in the past who um, could look back and to remember um, the mighty acts that you've displayed um, for them. The same is true for us. Lord, you have worked in great and mighty ways in, in bringing about our salvation. Um, Lord, let us always look back to Christ and who he is and what he's done um, and give you praise um, for that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.